Hey everyone, welcome to the Wandering Years podcast, a podcast where we declare the truth that not all who wonder are lost. Yeah, so often the young adult years seem like years that are wandering, figuring out who we are. And our hope with this podcast is that you would know that not every moment is a wandering moment and that we'd love to join in this journey together with you. So I'm Andrew. And I'm William. Let's join in this journey together. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wandering Years podcast. Um, You may have been thinking that we've wandered too far to find our way back home because it's been a long time since we posted anything, Um, but uh, we are back, and um, it's a good metaphor for repentance. There is always a way back, (laughs) Um, but today we got an extra special episode. I am joined by... Um, a good friend, a brother, groomsman in my wedding, um, probably um, the the best philosopher that I am friends with. It's got to be. And you have, you have very unintelligent friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, I am here with the one, the only Alex Hugo. What's up, Alex? Hey, Will. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize if I insulted any of your friends. I don't think that uh, I'm that great of a philosopher, but I'm always happy to talk nonsense with you. Yeah, it is good to talk nonsense. It helps us find out what's actually real. Um, but man, I'm really glad to have you uh, on the cast. And before we jump into our conversation today on beauty and the church and the role of beauty in um, our life with God... Just wanted to give the folks who are listening a chance to get to know you. So I would love for you to introduce yourself, um, maybe just a bit about where you're from, um, what you're passionate about, or perhaps who a hero is for you. Ooh, big looming question. You got it. Um, Yeah, so I grew up here in Memphis. Um, I have been involved in church my whole life. I grew up Lutheran um, and then have since moved a little more mainstream Protestant, I would guess. Um, I think you and I became friends about the same time that, uh, an interest in, um, I should call it like philosophy of the transcendent or transcendental values, sort of the truth, goodness, beauty, um, was four or five years ago. And that sort of started down a rabbit hole for me of, uh, lots of other questions, but that's where I get my interest in that. A hero, like a really old one might be Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I'm not Catholic. What, what, what do they call him? The, the old donkey? I think so. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not Catholic, but uh, he revitalized something of an intellectual tradition at a time when the church was uh, dying and um, just uninterested in, uh, in understanding the truth, um, sort of at the end of the Dark Ages, right before the Middle Ages. And I think that the work that he did and his, you know, his, people of his era did um, really awakened what would become of the um, intellectual revitalization of the church and spiritual, uh, and then on to so many other things that we have now. Faith seeking understanding. Yes. So for those listening, Alex and I are uh, kindred spirits, and our friendship was not a coincidence at all. Um, we got to know each other on a trip to England. 
And so we, we flew overseas with uh, the young adults group and we're just thrown into this, this world of beauty and tradition and art and literature. And when we came back, I think both our hearts were kind of on fire and it's been fun um, having all these conversations and topics and sharing poems and stories since then. And now uh, we get to let people into uh, the back door and see what we talk about most of the time anyways. Yeah, I think that was one of the big impetus for this podcast. And yes. we've been talking about it for months. Um, but I think back then, what I was looking for was like, I couldn't fathom why, and maybe we'll get into this later, um, why I had never heard about like a theology of beauty or even anything remotely related to that. Yeah. And I'd spent my whole life in the church. Um, and so that was astounding to me. And so hopefully we can give people some context and where to find those things and that those things do exist absolutely yeah because we definitely like we live in uh almost like a a beauty generation people who are hungering and and striving for that um and the world is giving that to them in the form of like instagram and etsy and kind of going back to like polaroids and trying to have this like aesthetic and um, the church, at least in the West, has, is, it hasn't been like recovering that same kind of need, like filling that need for beauty. Yeah, so, it's, it's right. And you hear so often that, you know, we're sort of post-truth, post-morality, but yet we are this generation that like longs for experience over everything else. Yes. Um, and, you know, philosophically, beauty would be in the realm of experience um and why we've just neglected that is beyond me well we'll be able to really get into it here in this conversation but before we do that we're going to share our um words of the week and so um just a a quotation that's struck you recently um so alex you're our our guest would love for you to tease off um i don't know if this quote has been recent but I thought about it when you asked me about a quote today. Uh, like five minutes ago. <laughs> yes. So I'm uh, a fan of stories in Harry Potter. Um, and there's this line after the Sorting Hat sings his song. And all the, in the first book, um, and all the kids are going back to their houses and rooms. And Dumbledore says, ah, music, a magic beyond all we know. Hmm. And um, that line always sat with me because obviously there's like layers of magic at Hogwarts, right? There's like kids who are getting educated and sort of coming to see the world in themselves. And there's like the magic in the story, which is like, you know, wizards and wands and all this. Um, and then, you know, I think that uh, Rowling just kind of throws this in there in the sense that like there's even more that, that she would not unpack uh, in, in her wildest fantasy that's magical hmm. I love that it's specifically music that like that brings this out of of Dumbledore and 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 the best artists always do that they present something almost as if it's this like passing thing but it really is profound has like real depth and uh music music has that someone I can't remember who it was but they basically said that all art aspires to the quality of music mm. in the sense that it's purely like uh, a representation of like feeling so it puts you almost in this it's the closest thing in this life to 
like the transcendent experience of like music and um and it's funny like and i think that a lot of times people's experience with music is uh how i would describe people's relationship with beauty and it's that like you hear this thing and it moves you so as the the music has this movement you have this thing in you that like corresponds to that and the the medievals would say there were a lot of different kinds of music there's the music of the spheres there's the music of the instruments and there's the music of the human nature and so this thing that captivates you is like speaking in this inner music and then what happens is you're so filled up about it you can't help but evangelize so you're like dude listen to this song or check out this band or you share it on instagram like just the snapshot of that like song and it really does like move you and there's a reason why um like tolkien has the creation myth being the angels singing the mm-hmm. singing the universe into existence yeah and uh lewis and um uh, magician's nephew like aslan sings narnia into existence it's this thing that like gets us close to heaven and um even like i mean if you go to like a, a mosh pit like punk rocker concert like that's a religious experience right <laughs> now, music has this you know incredibly emotive power right yes it can resonate uh you know, you can think of memories in your life and you tie them to songs. Yes. Um, and even Nietzsche said that without music, life wouldn't be worth living. Yes. Um, and he was sort of famously for surrendering to that idea. Or think about uh, Shawshank. There's that scene where Andy Dufresne is in the tower and he uh, plays the song over the loudspeaker and he's like, you know, locks himself in the guard's <laughs> tower. Yes. And uh, then you hear Morgan Freeman's voice come over the, the screen and he's like, you know, to this day that... We don't know what those ladies were singing, but every man in Shawshank felt free. Uh. And so it has this power to free men who are behind bars mm-hmm. without, you know, unlocking the doors. Um, and so, you know, Andy Dufresne risks everything in his little prison cell uh, for just a few moments of, can I, like, share this music? I think it's Figaro that uh, over the over the loudspeaker with everyone. Um, and it was worth it to him of whatever punishment would then come his way. Man, that's beautiful. And there's, you know, we could talk about music the whole time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah. So I'm going to share my quote so we can get to the good stuff. <laughs> but mine comes um, from G.K. Chesterton. It's um, a book called the Everlasting Man. And uh, I'm reading this because it was one of the books that um, helped convert C.S. Lewis. And I'm kind of on this. I build my... I built my reading schedule this year based on Lewis, and so reading the books that he loved, and um, and so that's just what I'm reading right now. And he was talking about um, mythologies and uh, how mythologies relate to religion and human nature. And during his time, a lot of people were debunking mythologies scientifically, so taking like sociological studies and things and um, making little of them. Um, And this is what Chesterton said. He said, He who has no sympathy with myths has no sympathy with men. That if you don't know the role of myth, the role of story, in our human nature, the way it captivates us, moves us, how it gives meaning to existence, because we are narrative beings. It's We live and breathe narrative. If you don't understand myths... You won't really understand human nature. 
And I thought that was really, really powerful thing. Yeah. And it's so even like, you know, when you hear the word myth, you think of like Zeus and, you know, Aphrodite and just like the, the Greeks and yeah. Norse mythology. But, you know, what it really is today is uh, things like Marvel yes. and Star Wars and Harry Potter and myths that like will pull us out of ourselves and bring us back to, uh, you know, you see guys in the gym work out with Captain America t-shirts because they like feel stronger. Right. Um, or a kid put on his, uh, Iron Man, you know, uh, costume to go to sleep because he'll like be able to fight off whatever evil he thinks is there. Um, and so in, in real, real ways, uh, we still believe myths and act them out all the time. Well, Alex, thank you, man. Glad to have you on the podcast and we'll get into it. All right, so we are talking about beauty. And this is, funny enough, this is take two for us. First time we came in here and the tyranny of technology shut us down. <laughs> but uh, as, as Ecclesiastes says, the Lord makes everything beautiful in its own time, and we are back and better and had some more time to brush up on our notes. <laughs> and... Um, we're ready to uh, jump into this thing. And so I think a good um, starting starting place will be a Dostoevsky quote. And you and I both are fans of Dostoevsky, and he's shaped a lot of, shaped at least for me, um, the theology of how stories work in um, theology. But here's the quotation. And actually, do you know where this comes from? It's the Brothers Karamazov. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I read it. It's so long. There's so many quotes in there that his books are hard to read. Yeah, it's, you can get lost pretty easy. But yeah, that one that one's from Karamazov. Okay, this is how it goes. The awful thing is that beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. So maybe a good place to begin would be just talking about like what does he what does he mean and what does it mean that beauty is a battlefield? Yeah. Um, so I think to to claim what Dostoevsky meant would be a mistake because I don't think we really understand a lot of his thinking, or at least I don't. He, um, for context. He was a, a Slavophile, right? He loved Russia and the East, and he was in the 1800s, and they had sort of skipped the Enlightenment. And so he's very much for the kind of hmm. um, more Orthodox Christianity that you would find in the Old East and not one that had been tainted by Western reason. Hmm. And so his emphasis on uh, not the sort of way that Aquinas would have saw the transcendent, um, but on the role that like that there's this sort of great cosmic war going on Hmm. is how he saw things um and he i got this quote or there's there's the juxtaposition i think of two dostoevsky quotes about beauty there's three um but two they're really juxtaposed one is beauty is a battlefield and the other is that beauty will save the world Hmm. uh and there's a great lecture on this 
um, I think it's on the Dawson Society. This lady's name is Tracy Rowland, but she kind of unpacks these two different views. Um, but the battlefield part, I think, is a better place to start because, hmm. you know, if you want to look at it from a um, sort of the way we would understand it as a question of more of like a epistemological ladder, hmm. right? So I think we are all asking the question of what is the good life? Yeah. Or how do you live a good life, right? Hmm. Um, any philosopher has asked that question or any thinker, any person really. That's what they're ultimately after. Um, well, to determine that, you have to look at the differences between good and evil. And to determine that, well, then you have to look for sort of what's true. Hmm. And in order to see truth, you must first look through beauty. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's like whether or not we admit it, right? We're all asking the question of this is versus ought. You know, how's the world operating now yeah. versus uh, what does that mean for me and how would I like it to operate or how would I want my life to look, right? So ultimately, the healthy person would land in sort of a liminal space of, say, acceptance of like, what what is and then fighting for what ought to be um and so if that's something that resonates with you right then the question of goodness must begin with beauty because yes. beauty is experienced through the imagination piercing the ontology so the sense of being of what is directly in front of us and it has this sort of anagogical after effects hmm. right um so if you want to look at like uh Science is a really easy example for this. So there's if there's like a bird that flies, um, you want to figure out like, well, why does it fly? Like what's hmm. going on? But the first thing that happens isn't you ask all those questions about why is it doing that or what is it? You just like look at it in amazement and you're like, oh my gosh, there it goes. Hmm. Like it's flying by. Um, so you start with this sort of desire to want to know like, well, what is that? Like what's going yes. on? And so all knowledge in that sense really starts with beauty. Hmm. Um, and so what Dostoevsky means is that you know, God and the devil are competing against our desires, right? They they want our attention. Yes. Um, they want the things that we're interested in. And so that lands, you know, philosophically on the question of beauty and what do we find desirable. Hmm. Man, I, I, I love that. And I think the way that you spun it in the sense that our, our desire— is the battlefield, mm-hmm. and we can see that. I mean, we can see that all throughout Scripture, in uh, like in the fall, right? What is the thing that Satan or the serpent does to tempt Eve? Pre- presents an apple, and it says it was pleasing to the eye, good for food and good for wisdom. Right. It was something that externally was a beautiful thing, but it drew her in. The desire drew her in, not to something transcendent beyond you know the physical but really into herself yeah and I think that that's the I think that's the biggest place where beauty beauty is a battlefield um, you see that too in like pro, like proverbs with a beautiful woman you, you have the beauty of wisdom that's contrasted with the beauty of the temptress and this has always been a theme that has run throughout Western literature and mm-hmm. so like uh, Spencer's fairy queen you have the um, um, the contrast of Una, who is one and good and true, with Duessa, who is this false double who looks beautiful on the outside and basically steers the hero away from the good life 
into this kind of place of pride and debauchery and fall mm. but on the inside she's actually this kind of like haggish kind of creature and so ultimately like beauty is this thing that's meant to draw us outside of ourselves and really i mean ground us in life with god because the transcendentals they exist in their truest form in god himself but if we don't if we just kind of see beauty maybe just like skin deep then we miss like the point that it's just a sign like a signpost like pointing us yeah on. that's kind of where i see it like the yeah. battlefield so maybe we should back up a second um because i think you can get really esoteric when you just throw out like um beauty is this beauty is that yeah. and you can get lost in the like well what does this actually mean or how do we define it and yes. I, I would have a hard time i think actually defining beauty but there's probably things you could point to right um so when you start with a like theology of beauty right um there's obviously desire that plays a role um but where do you build that framework from and and where do you start in your understanding of it yeah well i think i would i would start in the sense that Beauty is something that um, attracts you, it draws you, it makes you want to move towards it, So, um, or at least like you want to like emulate it. And so if you walk into um, a church seeing a, or like, like in Europe, like the churches that we went to over there, mm-hmm. they were just beautiful. And if you, when you're walking around the town, you can see like the spire and immediately like draws your attention. You're like, oh man, I want to, I want to try to get inside this thing. Yeah. It starts with attraction. Um, The question is, okay, like where does that, like where does beauty exist? Is it in the eye of the beholder? Is it just something that exists like in you uh, or in me? And we have different kind of subjective truths of what it is uh is it purely an emotional thing right does it start with oh this thing is looks beautiful and it makes me feel good and the feeling is what beauty is or is it something different and this is the camp that i would be in is that it's sacramental in the sense that through the crea- through creation that we can get a glimpse of the creator and then things made by man god has given us the imagination and put his image on us so that we could take the things of the earth and make them into good things sub-creating like tolkien did and so i think that beauty exists outside of us and that it draws us in and then when we're drawn in it almost like puts a claim on us like i was talking at the beginning about music like when you listen to music you're moved by it and then it sends you out almost like an evangelist and so you're drawn into this thing and then you like and this has been my experience you basically like want to conform your life to harmonize with this beautiful thing so like you don't want to remain un like unbeautiful you want to be changed so well so and i I love the way you said that too, because it is such um, 
like you like you said you become an evangelist for yes. whatever music you listen to right because yes. music is such an identity piece mm. and i think that's the best argument for art in general is that like you you adopt it as part of yourself and you're like oh this is like i'm someone who listens to rock music or to folk music or to rap or whatever like that becomes like part of who you are is is the art that you enjoy you're like oh i'm someone who likes marvel movies or i'm someone who likes old books um and so like you can um i forget the the quote but um essentially you can know so many things about yourself by what you're drawn to Hmm. right like like you find so much of yourself by what you're drawn to um and you know, the question of like, is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Well, that was like Augustine's question, right? He goes, is the thing beautiful because I like it or do I like it because it's beautiful? Yes. And his conclusion was that he liked it because it's beautiful. Yes. You know, and it's, it's something that really like, we would have never asked that question the same way we do today, like 300 years ago. Yes. You know, before this like, um, sort of the, the Renaissance, right? But also the, the, uh, modernization and you have, really the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, who gets a lot of things right, I think, but one of the things that he misses is sort of what the self is. Hmm. And so he can't rationalize what beauty is. He can't explain it. And so his conclusion in the critique of judgment is that it must be subjective because I can't fully rationalize and explain it. Hmm. Um, When in reality, I think that's such a limiting view of the self and what the self is, right? If, if If it's only... If, if what is beautiful only exists within me, then I can't change or adapt. Hmm. Um, then I can't grow. I can't intake things in the world. Um, as opposed to, like, you know, when you look at an old church, right, you, like, you know, my experience when we were in England was like, oh, wow, I am sort of walk into this place and I'm just, like, surrounded by it. And it just, it captivates me, right? It pulls me in, not the yes. other way around. Or the same thing with, like, a song that I really love, I will just like sit there and listen to it on repeat because yes. it's like, oh, wow, there's something about it that I'm like trying to capture or it's, this is the anagogical power of yes. beauty, right? This, this sort of spirit, spiritual power that it pulls you into some other dimension, right? A good painting does this too. And you just stare at it and it's like, you know, um, Degas said that the role of the artist is not to capture beauty, but to point to it, right? To sort of show us the perspective in the way. Hmm. Um, and so I think to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder is really to uh, denigrate both what is beautiful and right. the self and and the beholder. Yes. Um, and so like taste obviously plays a role and you know there's uh, there's levels to taste and, and different things that you might enjoy and there I think why we come to the conclusion often that beauty is in the eye of the beholder is because I think there are elements of the beautiful in everything. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that everything is beautiful. I think that's what the role of the artist is, to show us um, the uh, perspective to see beauty through, you know, a chair or the flowers or hmm. whatever. But it doesn't mean, like, those things of themselves contain all of what is beautiful. Hmm. And so that would be this, it's something beyond the transcendent, right? Otherwise, yes. like, and, I, and this is, I don't think we really believe that quote, that beauty is the beholder. At least no. we don't act like it. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have you know, art education classes yes. Um, or, you know, artists wouldn't really paint anything. And maybe you're seeing that now with the way that the trend of modern art is for the role of the artist to be totally diminished. And it's all in the role of the observer, right? You sort of 
move from this like Hegelian being to non-being. It's like, oh, we've just gone to non-being. And that's not, that's not who we are. That's not how we experience things. We experience things as beings with a personality and a perception. And, and a good artist will show you their, their perspective. And like, that's what you go to see hmm. from the artist is their perspective. Hmm. Man, that's, that's really good. And it really is only our modern culture post- I mean, yeah, post-enlightenment that has uh, a deep suspicion of there being, you know, not only transcendentals, but even just objective reality. Yeah. Um, but for most of human history, people would have known that there really was a, a good, true, and beautiful or a reality outside of me. And part of becoming a, a virtuous person, or like you said, a person with good taste, is uh, submitting <laughs> to um, whatever the good, the true, the beautiful was. And I think it's specifically the role of the beautiful that can invite you into that that place of transformation into virtue. And I mean, I would say like life with God, um, yeah. a relationship with God. And, um, you know, this is, that's something that someone we both love, Bishop Robert Barron has talked about, and, and he got it from Hans Urs von Balthasar, but it's this, this idea of, of beauty that um, it attracts you, it draws you, it, it puts a claim on you, and then it sends you. Mm. And um, uh, and I, I think that that's I think that that's particularly true. And and you said something to me a couple of years ago where you were like, uh, th- theological uh, truth tells you what to think. Uh, the the law or morality tells you what to do. But beauty says, just look. Yeah. So uh, Cervantes said that it's the prerogative of beauty to win hearts. Yeah. Right? It's winsome. It's winsome. Yeah. And what you know, Balthazar argues is that our path to Christ is not one where we, uh, you know, what, what the church has done with apologetics, you know, the past 200 years uh, is like, oh, we're going to argue what's true about God. We're going to tell you what you have to believe. And then we're going to show you what is good about God. We're going to do some good works. We're going to have do some things. And maybe we'll get to what's beautiful about mm. God. Whereas like the way we really experience them is the way that Balthazar claims that we do, which I think is like, oh yeah, we're captivated by the beautiful. Yes. Like we're, we're brought in, we see something, we're like, that looks, uh, that looks incredible. Like I want to see what that is. And then you are enamored by the goods. So yeah. You want to participate and take part. And then when someone tells you uh, that Jesus loves you or that like, Jesus is the Son of God, or any of these things that are true, that makes sense because it fits in harmony with the whole. Yes, right. It doesn't like, like, it doesn't stand out um, from the rest. Whereas, and this is sort of my issue, oftentimes with the way we do apologetics and pass out tracts and those sorts of things. Like they have their place, but uh, you know, I think God is concerned with the hearts of man, hmm. um, and He. He meets us in places in our heart, and and you know when you look at like stories of salvation, it's when someone chooses to look outside themselves, not when they like argue their way into it. Hmm. Um, and to ignore that entirely, even as like a um, from the outset in in Protestant circles, I think is just to miss so much of God. Right? Um, I think you could probably align a theology of beauty in a play. You know, a little kid, when they 
play church league soccer for the first time, you don't you don't have you don't get a kid to enjoy playing soccer by like starting to teach them all the rules, right? Yeah, not at all. That's not what happens. You don't want to listen, follow, listen to the rules. No, no, no. What, what happens is like they see maybe their older brother or their parents or their friends playing some game. And yes. they're like, oh, what is that? Like, I'm mesmerized by that. Yes. I got to know what that is. And then once they've like looked at that, then they're like, well, I want to be a part of that. They want to participate. <sighs> and then once they see it from the inside, then when someone says, well... Uh, you know, you can't cross this line. You got to kick the ball this way. You got to put the ball in the net. Like the rules then fit with the whole, right? Like uh, truth is harmonic or symphonic when it's it's in the right order. Um, but we just get it so backwards yeah. so often. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, I mean, especially like I, I definitely agree with what you're saying that we do get it back. We, I mean, we get it backwards, especially like especially now because if you tried to start with the truth. Like, hey, let me tell you about like Jesus. Let me tell you about the truth. People are going to be like, my truth is my truth. Like, who yeah. are you to like tell me what's true? Like, that's oppressive. It's also like they don't know you. There's no yeah. reason for someone to believe you. Right. Um, I, I'm all for, you know, sharing the gospel with people. Yes. And, and doing it with words and not just your lives. But like, there's something about it where people, uh, you know, I, I think that t- to see Jesus, right, you have the... A uh, famous passage of, I think it's John, uh, John fourteen, where he's like referencing Moses in the desert, and he's like, you know, just as just as uh, Aaron held up the yes. snake or held up the staff with the with the rod, so Jesus was like on the cross, right? And so it's it this image of like you have to look outward to Jesus, and you're only going to do that, I think, in a, two scenarios really. Like one is when you're at the end of yourself, so your darkest, weakest point, like this is your desperation, you have nothing else to look for. Yes. The other is. When you've been so jolted out of your own like self-centeredness by something so captivating that you're like, I got to know what that is. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you see it with like, um, I think it's Paul Claudel that was like claims he saw God through the North Rose window at in Notre Dame. <laughs> um, but you also see it in like the early church, right? Like there must have been something so attractive and so beautiful yes. about what Jesus was doing that these people, like as soon as he walked up to the uh, would be disciples. Yes. And he was like, come follow me. They just like yes. jumped at it. Yes. And so like you don't get there without this level of like, oh, there's something really attractive about this person. That a way he lives his life, that what's going on, like I gotta know. Um and the so one of the old Greek words for beauty uh is kalon, which means to call. Yes. Right. So beauty calls. It calls us out and pulls us forth. Um and I think you see that like time and again, like it, it does pull you out of yourself, and that's why it's so, um, so anagogical, right? Yeah. That's why it's so spiritual. Man, if if beauty were just something that were in me, it would be so lacking of meaning. Like the reason why I love beautiful things so much—stories, art, like you name it—it's because it's precisely outside of me. Because so long I looked for meaning in my own heart. And it was the lack of that that pushed me outside of myself. Yeah. And that experience, just like we were talking about, like the guy looking at the rose window and like seeing God, um, that was that was true. For, that was absolutely true for my stories, and that's why I fell in love with stories like Narnia, with Lord of the Rings, because it it had. I mean, it had the sense of a of a calling. I mean, those are all hero stories where they had mm-hmm. to leave home because they're call, like they're called out by something, and um, and then. I mean, uh, yeah, then the power of the story takes them home. Um, 
But I want to say something else too about um, about Jesus mm. and and the way we do the way we present him today. It's not just we don't just need to present him as the truth. We need to present the gospel in an attractive kind of way. And the early experience of the disciples was was that there's that dialogue between um, Philip and uh, I think it's Nathaniel, and one of them says, uh, "I I found the Messiah. Uh, he's from Nazareth." And the other one responds, "Can anything good come from Nazareth?" Because <laughs> it was just just like hick town, and would have been like someone from Harvard saying, "Like the Messiah came from Bucksnort, Tennessee." You know. Yeah. Um, so like immediately he was like, "There's nothing good there," and Philip responds, "Come and see." He's like, come and just see for yourself. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to try to convince you that it's good. I'm not even going to convince you that it's true. I'm just inviting you to look. Right. Well, and that's what's so inviting about beauty, right? And you said it a little bit ago, like, you know, truth tells us what to think. Goodness tells us how to act. Beauty just says, look. Yes. Right. And that's what's most compelling. Yeah. And then when you when you do look, you are called into this thing. And it reminds me, This is this, these are some lines from... Um, a poem that Rilke wrote called The Archaic Torso of Apollo. And these are the last two lines. For here, and he's talking about when you when you look at that actual sculpture, for here, there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Mm. The experience of seeing something beautiful isn't that you grasp that thing it's actually that it grasps you and it pulls you in and that's going to be a terrifying thing at times (laughs) right um but then when you're there just like the keats poem ode to a grecian urn the last couple lines or uh truth is beauty beauty is truth this is all ye need to know when you are pulled into that thing, because that was his poem, this reflection of this beautiful Grecian urn, he feels as if that beauty is the truth. But outside of the beauty, you would have never connected those two things. So when you get drawn into it, you are seen, you are grasped, you're found out. (laughs) That's precisely when you're like, I'm not, like you're like Isaiah before God. You're like, I am unclean. And yet then in that moment, you want to become beautiful yeah and that's when the good life of taking on the good and then eventually coming to believe the truth oh actually i think it would be believing the truth first and then with the believing the truth you conform your life to the good that's when those things come together but it starts with the attraction of the beautiful yeah no i I love that and i almost actually shared the keats quote as my word of the day yeah um yeah i mean so you think about like we said at the beginning, you know, that we see beauty and experience, right? It's all about this like world of experience. Um, it's hard to imagine uh, the uh, the uh, seeing a sunrise having a negative effect on you, right? Um, or a sunset. Uh, it's hard to imagine like being angry at um, you know some amazing stained glass windows or looking at the pyramids or some other like great human architectural achievement because hmm. um, there's something about it like beauty just arrests you right it stops you in your tracks 
Um, and you're right, it, it calls you forth. Like, love is probably the best example, right? It inspires people to change their lives and do things they wouldn't otherwise do. Hmm. Um, and I think Balthazar would have said that, that love is the best, uh, our best understanding of what beauty is, even in its like, most transcendent form. Hmm. Um, but the love like maybe you have with your friends or with the spouse or with, uh, or with God or anything else. And because it's something that like, you know, if you're in any kind of relationship that has love in it, like you have to change. You can't just be yeah. totally yourself. Like you have to meet the other where the other's at. And, um, you know, in that way, like it, it definitely calls you to be better and, and move on and forward. Um, and, you know, like the, the, so Chesterton has this juxtaposition of uh, Buddhism and Christianity in, in orthodoxy where he says like, you know, the symbol of Buddha is a circle. Hmm. Um, you know, he said, Buddha just says, sit there, like everything's contained within you. Uh, the symbol of Christianity is a cross, right? So there's this like contradiction at the center, but yet it expands like all four winds. Yes. And, you know, what Jesus says is follow me, right? So like Buddha says, sit there, Jesus says, follow me. And that's like maybe the simplest distinction we can ever have. Yeah. Because um, he just asks us to come with him like onward. And that that is, you know, the adventure. Um, it is. And I, I he says later in Orthodoxy, he says, just look at the, 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 the different kind of art between Buddhist traditions and Christian. The, the Buddhist tradition always presents the kind of monk or holy man with his eyes closed. He's inside of himself. You know, all of reality, Brahma, is in you. <laughs> Christian art, Christian saints, very different. Their eyes are wide open, almost like they've been shocked. <laughs> and it's because the light is outside of them, and it's piercing them. Mm. And I think that really is a, a, be- a beautiful thing. And I think Christianity specifically has kind of had that finger on reality better than any other tradition, that there is something real outside of us, and that kind of the reason why we are made is to be drawn out of ourselves because sin Martin Luther said was man curved in on himself mm. the beauty is the one thing that can crack that shell and draw us out into reality which yeah. ultimate reality is the trinity like that is rea- like reality itself yeah that's more real that's more way. real right so that's what the imagination is like it yes. allows us to get to something that's an even deeper reality than what's just right in front of us yeah yeah man i could we could do another podcast about the imagination because that's exactly yeah. what happens well, well they're so intertwined right yeah you know like you know, lewis says the imagination is the organ of meaning yeah um, but it would be how we would navigate our way to the transcendent um, yeah it is the wardrobe that opens mm-hmm. the door into yeah. deeper reality the deep magic and then helps us, like, uh, uh, Tolkien's um, on fairy stories, it gives us eyes to see this world clearly. Mm. Um, because the experience of as we get older, like, our vision just becomes crusted over. Like, everything becomes abstracted. Like, a house is just a house. It's not yeah. that house. Or, like, uh, this this color is just a color. It's not this particular shade. And what the imagination does, like when you read about um, the the deep emerald green of a dragon, it helps you come back into this life and see green. 
and it makes a stone a stone. And yeah. that's chiefly the role of good stories and good art is to reverse our vision in order to see reality as it is. And not just that, but to see through it. Um, mm. Yeah. You heard of a Cyprin Norwood? No. Uh-uh. I think that's how you say his name. He, he was just like a Polish poet. Um, he said, beauty is to enthuse us for work and work is to raise us up. Right, so this would be the same line of Tolkien that uh, a story would take us out of ourselves so that we could come back and face our problems more fully. Um, which is interesting, you said that he was after like sort of clarity, right? We yes. bring clarity to our eyes. So he would have said that, um, so backing up to the beginning, we talked about how beauty is this like fight and desire. Yeah. Um, Tolkien didn't think that evil and beauty could exist together. Right. Or that an evil thing could be beautiful. Yes. So he obviously would have wanted more clarity. And that like the things that were bad for us or evil should be ugly, right? And you see yes. that so much in his stories that yes. like, you know, the only thing that's attractive about evil is the ring. Yes. And even that is like different for everyone. Um, in the way that it interacts and its power. Man, that's good. And that and that actually brings me back to what I was talking about um earlier about like Spencer's Fairy Queen because Tolkien and Lewis they love that story Mm. like that was like the wild fantastic crazy story compared to Milton's Paradise Lost which is very orderly very important but anyway um, like Duessa who's masking as Faith or Fidessa isn't truly beautiful it's just an illusion and it is this recovering vision of the beautiful uh, of Una of who I think ends up being the fairy queen but if you're a medievalist out there and you want to correct me go for it <laughs> I haven't read the whole whole thing but anyway he comes back and then they can see Duessa for what she is a monster yeah. ugly and it's not true beauty it's just an illusion and um, and I think that's what, what like a fall is a fall is choosing an illusion. Like mm. we're 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 like seeking something beautiful, but we choose an illusion yeah. rather than the real thing. And it is the role of of, of beauty and um, to basically give us eyes to see, yeah, what's real. So we bounced around in kind of the I don't know world of the esoteric, yes, and uh, beauty and transcendent, and hopefully it was intelligible. Um, but there's one story that I wanted to share that's like um, a little bit, maybe bring it back down to questions of like the church now yes. and the role of beauty in the church today. Um, so this just really sat with me when I was uh, I was in Copenhagen a few years ago and um, we were walking around this corner and there's this uh, old church. It's called, uh, I think it's like St. Nicholas Church. Um, it's like a 12th century um, Lutheran cathedral. And on the side of the church, there was this big banner that said, I am not a church. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, the trope of modern art is irony, right? Hmm. Um, and this, this is a modern art museum now, and you can see it's a cafe. Like, it's obviously uh, not being used as a church anymore. But I thought the banner was, like, kind of hilarious and indicative of, of like, this moment in time. Um, in that... You know, did they a think that people were so dumb that they might walk in and like ask for communion because it's so obviously a church, <laughs> uh, and you know they wanted to be like in a time where the arts couldn't be more ideologically opposed right. from the church, they had to be so obvious that they weren't one. But at the same time, they clearly valued the architecture of the building and 
like so I thought it was like so worthy and beautiful in that place and where it was at that they were like all right we're going to occupy this space and it is so obviously a church like it was so obviously designed to stand out um, from the rest of the town uh, with its stained glass and its spire and you know the way everything sort of points to the center yes. that like oh yeah like that's everyone knows that that's a church like it's obvious and so it stands out um and I just I thought it was kind of funny, so I looked up some history on this church after I saw it, and it turns out that uh, it actually burned down in like the early 1900s, hmm. um, and it was no longer being used as a church. But the people of Copenhagen were like, "We want to build it back, uh, even though it's not going to be used as a church." And so it had different uses and sat vacant for a long time, and then it became like an art museum and whatnot. Um, but they built it back in the same architectural style and same design, like stained glass, everything, as it was originally built because they valued it so much and so deeply and so innately. And so I started to think, I was like, you know, I wonder in 200 years when the, uh, you know, uh, the congregations are no longer meeting at some of the churches in Memphis, like, will they need a sign on the side of it to remind people that it's not a church? Um, and I don't think so for most of them, you know, um, the church that I've spent the most time at here in Memphis is, uh, it's just a sort of a bland, um, white wall on the outside. Like there's nothing, you know, we pride ourselves on having nothing in the sanctuary. Hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've never spent more, you know, efforts on our narthexes, meaning like our entrance halls and you have really good coffee and all signs about missionaries all to get people in the door, you know, like. Um, but there's never been less in the church. Hmm. And so uh, you talked about earlier that we need to present the gospel in an attractive way. And I think that I would challenge that because I, I think we've been trying to do that for a long time where we've tried to make the gospel as attractive to the world as possible. Hmm. Um, when in reality, we've just like tried to blend in, you hmm. know, as opposed to being something other and standing out uh, in ways as simple as architecture um, mm. or as like the sanctuary of the place. Mm. And so, you know, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's so much that we need to make the gospel attractive, but I think we need to sort of step out of its way mm. and, and show its beauty, right? Like we are supposed to be stained glass, like mm. let the light shine in and the light will like reveal what's beautiful about the glass. Yes. Um, as opposed to like no longer needing the light. Hmm. That was good. <laughs> I, I thought about that for like two years um, after I saw that. Like, it sort of hit home yeah. with like all the stuff that, you know, you and I had talked about and, and read. And um, I think it does sort of, you know, like you look at any of the big churches around town and they've got millions of dollars in facilities. Right, so they didn't spend any less money than people used to spend. Yeah, um, but they spent their money on gyms and schools and baseball fields and um, whatever. Right, um, and those are all good things. But what you've done in that moment is like you're no longer going out into the community to participate in it. You've asked the community to come to you, and that's okay. But now you've like created a safe space for. Uh, you know, kids to play baseball or soccer or do Sunday school. Um, and so they no longer have to go engage with the people around them mm. um, versus like 
what if we had spent the same amount of money on like just the sanctuary and we didn't have the baseball fields and the soccer fields? Because I don't think that the rest of society would go without baseball fields and basketball courts. <laughs> I, like, I think they'd find a way. And I think that there would be a, a way to be even more involved in the neighborhood and the community um, if it wasn't like, oh, you've got to come do our Bible study uh, to put your kid on our team. Right. You know, um, that's always sort of struck me as like bizarre that we want to be people that are, go out into the world get like we've created lives where we're going to make sure that everyone has to come to us hmm. man um, I wanted to share an experience too that I had of basically what we've been talking about is being true this, this like the way that beauty like captures you gives you a vision mm-hmm. and makes you want to stay um was uh, I was taking this class um, through Asbury, and it was called Theological Aesthetics, and it was all about this conversation that we're having today, the role of beauty um, in the church, the historic church, and in, in the life of believers. And um, Anyway, I was doing my research project on Wilson Chapel here at Christ Church, and Wilson Chapel is the most beautiful space here. Um, it um, has this like warm brick coloring and this beautiful series of stained glass windows that present different. They, they basically present different pictures of Christ, different forms of Christ corresponding to the I am sayings in scripture, but it's just really immaculate. And uh, I was, I basically sat in there the whole day and meditated on, uh, sat in the beauty and then was trying to discern the truth and goodness that came from it. And as I was sitting in there, this guy just walks in in the middle of the day, and he was um, basically like he was dropping off a bunch of food or supplies or something to the front desk, and it was it was it had just been like moving. He was a mover and drove the truck. And he came in and he, he didn't know I was in there, and he was just like, "Wow," <laughs> just totally breathtaking. And he's like, "This is amazing." And then he saw, like, he saw me sitting there, and he was like, "This is this is beautiful." And I was like, "You're telling me." Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, "I wish I could sit in here all day." Mm. And then he had to leave and, and do his job. Yeah. But like, dude, people are trying to get people to church, and they can't. <laughs> and this guy just wanted to stay yeah. there. I mean, I have so many thoughts on that. Um, okay, so the first is, I think that the. Uh, one of the like best things about modern society is also the worst things. We have spent all this money in art museums. And art museums are cool. Um, but you really have to live in somewhere like New York or Paris or London to go see like the world's best art. Yes. Um, you don't get to walk around town and see like beautiful architecture or paintings in churches or that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, a church that spends a bunch of money on its organs, right? That music is for the poor, because hmm. it's not for the people who are going to pay a bunch of money to come. It's for anyone who's like walking down the street or anyone who happens to walk in and the worker. And so, like, to really uh, part of loving the poor, I think, in the role of the church is to give them something beautiful in their community, so they don't have to go somewhere else to see it or there's something like worthwhile in it, right? And then um, the second thing is, I think that the uh, so one of the things just baffled me when we were in, in Europe was like we went into all these old churches and cathedrals and you know there's stained glass and the story of christendom all around it yes and not once did any of like the tours we went on like 
um, whether it was the bishops or whoever was there, like not once did someone tell us like this is the story of Jesus and this is the gospel and these are the Christian people and this is why they cared about it. Yeah. And yet we've got like millions and millions of people are flocking to Europe to see these like beautiful old cathedrals every day. Um, and it's it's like the biggest the biggest evangelism opportunity that the church is just not even touching. Totally missed. Right? It's just totally missed. You know, we're spending all this money to send people all over the world and trying to figure out, well, how do we reach people? How do we reach the community? We're like, who doesn't want to go to Europe? And yeah. Places, right? Like, people from everywhere want yeah. to do that and from all cultures. Like, there's something, I don't know, so objectively valuable about them that, that people go. Yes. And yet, like, the church is just like, ah, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to talk about it. It's like uh, Bishop Barron shares this in his videos where he talks about how he was a tour guide at Notre Dame when he was in seminary. And they told him, like, not to share the gospel, like not Dude. to evangelize. <laughs> and, you know, he says that he found a way to do it anyway. Um, but I think that's just, like, so indicative of, like, where the church is at. Like, we're so afraid, uh, in one sense, to be different, but also just, like, so unaware of what people really want. Yes. Because we've just, like, made people these boxes and robots and our, our views of them and so we, we so this is like we don't have the proper view of self yeah right and the theology of that yes um and i think a proper understanding of the beautiful will lead to that yeah i think so and and that's that's the problem of the protestant west is that we see people as brains on a stick yeah and not as embodied souls mm. that are moved more than we're convinced yeah right and so I think if we saw people for what they are, embodied souls who are primarily aesthetic creatures, that we would angle our efforts into moving them. And then the convincing can come later. But Balthasar has this great statement where he says, uh, to want to see the stained glass windows from the inside is already to believe. Hmm. If you have that desire and you want to come in, that's that's a prime position that's right. for belief. Well, stained glass doesn't make sense from the outside. No, it makes no sense, dude. Right, it it's, only makes sense from yes, the inside. It's dark, yeah. it's cracked, it looks ugly, but then, and yeah, and gosh, and then the movement of coming in gives you the vision to see everything rightly. Mm. And I mean, and that that's that's Christ. Like, Beauty is the desire that wants you to move into the church, his body. You move in through Jesus, and then when you're in from the inside, you can see every. You can see what we're talking about: reality, yeah. joy, truth, goodness. But it starts mm-hmm. with that with that movement of beauty and desire. But you even see that in, you know, in Jesus's own life. Right? He doesn't come up to people and like explain to them, you know, all kinds of reasons why he is God. Right? He just says like. <sighs> Come yeah. follow me, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's really the most that he gives them. It's like he heals them, he meets their need, and then he's like, "Come with me." And so now, that when they're participating, only after they're like participating in Jesus' work, does he then send them out and be like, "Okay, now, like you know," and, and they're and they're so bought in to to who he is and and what's being done that they want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's really good. So and- it like requires that kind of participation. So I think one of the big questions then, at least for me, has been like. Okay, if I accept that, um, I that we don't have a right theology of beauty uh, in the Protestant Church most of the time. Yeah, um, and maybe I don't even fully understand what it is. Like, well, then what? How do we go about recovering that? Yeah, first of all, and then what do you do as like an individual yeah. and someone in the church? And because it, it's 
you know, the answer isn't like go build these big cathedrals, right. even right. if that would be cool. Yeah, this is and this is a place where I, I wanted to actually like wrap up our conversation because we're getting we're getting close to closing time. <laughs> um, but you're right. Like, okay, so what do we? What do we do both as like in my position, someone who works in a church, um, do to have this proper vision of beauty? And then what would the person do who is like hung like hungering for more? Yeah. So I can probably speak to the second. Um, I think you have to answer that from a question of like understanding how beauty is lost. Hmm. Right. Um, so I think it's lost through desecration. Yes. Um, and it, beauty requires judgment, right? It requires you to look at something and sort of make a decision about it or, or like lean into it or not. And so judgment would lean on virtue. Yes. Um, and, you know, C.S. Lewis in his Abolition of Man, like, has a great chapter about men without chests, right? Like, if we're just heads, um, we, we just have a head and we have, like, we have, our chests are atrophied because we haven't worked on them. Like, there is no virtue within them. Yes. Um, and so I think one way to bring beauty back into your life and the lives around you is to, like, focus on virtue. Yes. And bring virtue back into your life and bring back the sacred. Because um, one of the virtues of beauty is sacrifice. Um, and without that, we definitely can't have it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll comment on, on that. Um, having an eye for the beautiful, that d- d- discrimination and judgment, you really only get that through discipline and through mm-hmm. being with people who are masters. Um, because we really are like, and Lewis gets that from Plato. It's we're in, we are intellect, appetite. So intellect's the head, appetite's the belly, and the chest is that where we've taken our will and subjected mm-hmm. it to virtue. And it's this thing that gives us a, like a fully kind of embodied experience. And um, but you can't do that alone. Yeah. And you know, um, for me, if I went to like a piano recital. And someone played the perfect song, but it was in the wrong like key. I would have no idea, yeah. and I would leave thinking that was great, that was really good. But then, if there were a master pianist there with me, they would leave and be like, "Totally missed it. Right. Like it was totally off." And so this this kind of deeper experience into reality is something that's out like totally blank to me, and yet it's available. By basically subjecting yourself to the, to the yeah. discipline. Well, and one of the ways in which we ignore the discipline or desecrate beauty is like, you know, we do it through music a lot. You know, most people think that they love music. What they really love is distraction. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, uh, I'm going to inundate myself with song after song after song to not just be alone with my thoughts or not focus on what's going on. You know, like how often do you sing the words to a song and like not even know what they're saying or what you mean and then catch yourself you're like oh well, what, what was that what did i say you know you don't you don't know what you even know because <laughs> it's so like you you've been so numb to it um and that's not what what it was designed for or what your experience at best is for yeah uh wow what, uh let me see if i can find this quote um this is uh i just had it i pulled it away um so I think two things. One about the loss of beauty. Um, give me a second. No, you're good. So uh, Roger Scruton was a famous philosopher on beauty. Yeah. Right? 
He said that uh, beauty is vanishing from our world because we live as though it did not matter. And we live in that way because we have lost the habit of sacrifice and are always striving to avoid it. All right. So when we just inundate ourselves with distraction, it's just mere entertainment. Um, then yeah, that's we are contributing to uh, the desecration of the beautiful. Right. But um, doing things like, you know, I mean, in little ways, just in the way you treat art, um, whether it's music or movies or stories, like, and sort of contemplate them on on what they really are, is is an exercise in remembering the beautiful. Right. Um, another would be sort of like living in the way that Proust said. Um, he said that you know, the real voyage is not discovering new landscapes, but having new eyes. That's good. Um, so Proust wrote the, like the longest book in the world, and it was all about like how do you find happiness. And he went through, um, you know, work couldn't figure it out, love couldn't figure it out, and he was like, well, "What about art?" And his conclusion was that the perspective of the artist is actually the best way to find happiness in life. So like. The perspective of the artist is similar to that of a little child. You know, a kid, every time they see a puddle, it's like the most amazing puddle ever. Yeah. Um, if, in Chesterton's orthodoxy, he has the um, the ethics of, of Elfland. Yeah. Um, it's all about this, right? And, like, if you can see what is mundane with fresh eyes, then, uh, then you will have so much richness in your life. And that is the, like, deepest perspective. Because otherwise, like, the mundanity of things will just, like, drag you down. Yeah. Um, versus if you can find, again, the elements of the beautiful, like we said at the beginning, in things. Yeah. Well, that, and that's that's the sacramental vision, mm-hmm. that in just bread and wine, the presence of Christ is there. Yeah. It takes you, like, it's these mundane things that actually bear the weight of yeah. immense holiness. And good art and good beauty helps you to, to do that right. with everything. Well, that's kind of the paradox of this whole conversation, right? Is that, like, we can talk about recovering beauty all we want and and talking about how we have a loss of, of it in our lives. But in reality, like, it's already among us. Yes. You know, like, it's already here. Uh-huh. We just don't have the right eyes Got to the see eyes it. to see. Yeah. And so that's what I would encourage, you know, anyone who's interested in this or even just, like, the church in general is, like, how do you, how do you open yourself up to those eyes? Um, and how do you um, show that to the people that you're with and that you love and that you're around? That's really good. And um, com- so a comment that I have on the church, and if you're working in a church or in ministry, like what are some ways that you can angle your services towards the beautiful? I think we're recovering um, the ancient practices of the church and having liturgy, having words that have been in, so intentionally thought over and used and put in the perfect place that your people can rest in. And um, my like metaphor for this is um, the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Jesus knows that one of the reasons why Jesus unveils his beauty, his glory, to um, Peter, James, and John is that he knows that the crucifixion is coming. Mm. Like death, pain, separation, all of that is is imminent. And it's in that very moment that he unfurls yeah. his glory. Basically, to give them a vision of where they will be. And man, a church service should do that. It should be as 
It should be a transfiguration experience in the words of the liturgy, in the images that the pastor uses, in the music that is played. It should be a glimpse of something more. And the Catholics get this right when they call their services mass. It comes from the Latin word to send. Because you come in, you're blessed, and then you're sent. And a church service is where you should like fall and rest in the words and the beauty and have your soul restored, right? It's, it is Rivendell, and then you're about, you've left the old forest and you're dying and you've fallen into Rivendell and you're recovered by the poetry and the music and the ancient voices, and then you're sent. Yeah. And you're back into this kind of war-torn world, but you have enough, you're filled up with enough to make it to, you know, next weekend. Yeah. And um, I think that's so good too. Like, you know, church is not a spectator sport. No. Right? And, and liturgy allows you to participate. Yes. Um, and, you know, a church service that's like song, song, tug, talk, song, announcements is like just just watching. Like, you're not participating. Dude. Um, and I, so I, I was talking to a friend of mine one time. And she said that um, her dad was, maybe he was a pastor, but he was very involved in the church, and then he became uh, disabled. And so he couldn't, like, stand up when, uh, you know, everyone's singing songs, and he really couldn't sit there and listen to a 45-minute sermon. And so he became, I think, more Anglican or something more traditional because he was able to participate in worship when he could, like, mouth the words of the Lord's Prayer or the creeds um, or, or go back and forth with the liturgy. Um, as opposed to just like having to sit there and not be able to pay attention because there's something going on. And so I think that um, it's so much richer yes. when there's more engagement and it's not just a spectator. Yeah, yeah. And church, church isn't about information. It's about transformation. Mm. And having liturgy, which is um, from the Greek, it means the work of the people. It invites you into being transformed. Um I forgot where I was going to go from there. I don't know. I love that, though. <laughs> I think uh, that's what, you know, that's on the theme of everything we've been talking about, right? Yes. Um, like, and, and that's what beauty does, right? Like, Christian isn't called to, to conform, but to transform, Yes. Right? And so, so much of our church nowadays is to trying to conform to the world. Um, and I'm not talking about being, you know, sort of what's normally called, like, countercultural. It's not, it's not countercultural. It's like... Um, richer cultural, yes, you know, is what we really want. Like something even more full and and more amazing, um, not just against whatever's in the hmm. world, because um, that's not really the goal. Hmm. I mean, the goal is to invite people into it, not to fight it. Hmm. I remember what I was going to say. Okay, it was the Roger Scruton quotation as well. Oh, good. Um, and uh, he said this. He said, "Beauty consoles us in our grief and amplifies our joys." Hmm. That should be the role of a church service, to console you in your grief. When you lament and confess, you do that truly and deeply, and then you're met with the beautiful words of the church that you're forgiven and that you're heard, that God hears you and sees you. Um, and then your joys are amplified hmm. because God himself, like Lewis would say, is capital J, joy. And church should be, and the whole Christian life should be about following those those like stabbing pangs of joy in this life, that are signposts that push that push you on to ultimately unity and union with Him. Um, 
so that's that's the best I got <laughs> on beauty. <laughs> um, but before we wrap up, I wanted to give you a, a last last chance to have any um, con- concluding remarks or thoughts. Um, uh, the other Dostoevsky quote that we didn't really get into, um, yeah. but maybe it's the conclusion of all the other things we've said, um, is that beauty will save the world. Hmm. Right. And I think that's so true. I think it um, is in lots of ways like it, you know, um, the the ugliness that we see in the world and the ugliness that we see from the church and uh, the confusion and the dissension uh, amongst believers, like the path back is through the beautiful right and the path to Christ and Christ is the beautiful one like that's what will save us and bring us all together right i think dostoevsky was sort of prophetic in that and that beauty will save the world yeah we are um dante yeah in the and beatrice comedy. will lead us out it's yeah. it's it's the beatific vision mm. of beatrice this i mean be- like beautiful glimpse of um really of god himself shown through shown through um, Beatrice is the thing that brings Dante out of hell, out of purgatory, into heaven. Yeah, you see it in uh, in Brideshead too. Yes, right. I think that's one of my favorite novels. I think it's one of yours too. Yes. Where Charles Ryder, who's this like cool agnostic, um, sort of comes to the beauty of his friend Sebastian, and then of this place that is Brideshead, and then sort of conforms to the morality of it because he's like so enamored with this place, and that leads him to the church at the end of it. Yes. And so it, it really does bring him in and pull him to to Jesus. Yes. And I would encourage anyone, if you're interested in going deeper and further up and further into beauty, to get a copy of Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. And, I mean, that's it. And Brideshead... Whoa knew what he was doing, or why, I don't know how to pronounce it, but bride, like the bride of Christ, and then the head, Jesus is the head. Mm. And so it really, in, in the economy of that novel, this was the, the, the spiritual life of desire for beauty where you're drawn into this really beautiful home and beautiful family. Uh, and he was drawn into it really because of the aesthetics. But then because he was, when he was drawn in, it was his love for Sebastian and then the ultimate like him coming to believe the truth and then conforming his life to the goodness and the two like really powerful scenes well one not so but the other is is like the first time he comes like the middle of this house there is a chapel the first time he comes in he's he is he's just like this cool as agnostic he doesn't really get the meaning but by the end of the novel yeah he goes back into the same chapter at same chapel after so much suffering and like his life like was not good <laughs> but yet he's come to belief um, and yeah. I think that that's that's the way that the the beatific vision works in our life that's right and you know bringing it back to the evangelism piece right like beauty is a window it's it's just it's a really compelling window yes. and a door um, you know what keeps people is like the fullness of God yes um, but what might bring them in is something just like compelling that they can't understand yeah beauty without truth and goodness is nothing more than well truth and goodness can't accomplish what uh what they are without beauty yes and so it has the one the one connects you to the others Mm -hmm. and that's when you experience and this is what later thinkers would call like the sublime like this deep wholeness that uh, ultimately transforms you so 
Alex, um, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Will. I feel like there's so many more rabbit holes we could go down. Well, um, we'll have to do it again. This was great. Well, we'll do it again. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening, and we will be back. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our conversation on beauty. Uh, We hope that the conversation itself was beautiful and that it could um, entice you and push you on to something more. Um, But if you have questions about it or you do want to know more or you're interested in um, more resources or even more of maybe the philosophy behind beauty, um, would love for you to email me. Uh, my email is William M at ChristChurchMemphis.org, and I could forward all of those um, to my friend Alex, and hopefully we can get together again soon and have another conversation. But we love you, and um, we're glad to be walking with you uh, in your wandering years. 